be recording now. I just got to get my intro. Yep. And that'll only take me a second. And okay. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Podcast. The intro is playing. Sorry about that. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Septic Podcast. I have another fascinating guest with me today. I have with me Reverend Peter Panagor. He was uh, he's had a, a handful of near death experiences, but he has an amazing career in, in spirituality. Um, he was recruited as a TV as the fifth minister of America's oldest religious broadcast. Peter's two minute spot aired for fifteen years just before the morning weather on News Center Maine. On two NBC stations, reaching 80,000 viewers a day. Previously, Peter had served as a New England as the United Church as Christ Minister. His audible bestseller, Heaven is Beautiful, has been optioned for a film. His first book, Two Minutes for God, is a non-denominational devotional drawn to, from his 1700 TV stories. He's working on his third book to build around his talk that provides mentoring to spiritual speakers, seekers worldwide. And his books are uh, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Him That Death Was Just the Beginning, Two Minutes for God, Quick Fixes for the Spirit, and the anthology Chicken Soup for the Veteran's Soul, Stories to Stir Pride and Honor and Courage of Our Veterans. And I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Peter, thank you, for Reverend Peter. Thank you for joining me. How are you? Rob, hi, Rob. Thanks for having me, and please call me Peter. Okay. Um, and I, let's start off here. Um can you tell us a little bit about your near-death experiences? Because you've had two. Um, if you if you don't mind getting into it a little bit, that I'd love to hear what happened, and especially the points of where when you lost con not lost consciousness, because we know that's not it. But when you separated from body, but if you if you don't mind telling the backstory, that'd be great as well. Sure, I'll make the backstory of the first one pretty short because it's uh, it, it it happened over about eight days. Uh, I was ice climbing and snow caving in Alberta and British Columbia, Western Canada and the Rocky Mountains in 1980 in March. Uh, the, the short version of what happened was on the last day we did this one ice climb. And I hadn't been ice climbing before. I'd done a lot of mountain climbing in my life all over New England and a lot out west. I've been backpacking in the winter and spring and summer and fall. So I was in my element. But uh, I made a mistake, and the mistake I made was in the equipment. I climbed with a hammer and an axe. You're supposed to have an axe and an axe, but I couldn't come up with a second axe, and so I used this very rinky-dink uh, hammer that uh, shortened my swing, which slowed our climb, and also I had to grip it. I couldn't dangle on it. You can set an axe and let go of the axe and hang on a strap. But I couldn't do that. I had to keep my muscles tense. And so those two things combined created this circumstance where we ended up reaching the top of this five or 600 foot climb at sunset when we should have been leaving at sunset. So we were in a very dangerous situation. And the short version is it is that Wait, it Wait, can I ask you this? Sure. I, I, I have to ask you this. What makes someone want to do that? I mean, were you always a thrill seeker? <laughs> Yeah, I guess kind of. Um, uh, I, I I have a bold streak, I guess you could say. Uh, I I 
I guess I guess it was most expressed in my younger days as a skier. I I, I rapidly became a, a very good skier as a kid, and was a high speed moguls jumping and all that kind of stuff. And it was I loved the thrill. And the thing about climbing in general, uh, rock climbing and ice climbing combined, is that it's it's a hyper focus state. I'm I have ADHD, and hyper focus state is a flow state for me. And so when I'm when I'm in that kind of situation, especially when there's some element of of danger involved, there's nothing like that to to really pinpoint the mind and stay exactly where you are. It's in a sense, it's a practice of now being in the now. Because when you're climbing, you can't you can't be thinking about where you were or where you're going. You have to really pay attention to exactly where you are and everything around you. And so it was it was a, a a new thing for me, ice climbing. But being in that kind of situation on on rock and climbing up and being in the wilderness and uh, taking calculated risks. Okay, so I, I'd like to clarify that I'm I may have a thrill seeking side to me, but it's always about control. So even when I'm, I'm high speed skiing through the trees, even today, it's all about it's all about how much how much I can come to the edge. I don't go. I try not. I try never to go over the edge. I try to ride that edge, and and that's true. And you know, I, I raced sail. I raced four people in sailboats for about a decade too. Same kind of thing. Like total focus on your game, no mistakes. That kind of thing. And. And I just thought it was going to be a hoot. I really did. I, I, I'd never ice climbed before. And Tim, the guy I was climbing with, had just completed his certification for being a lead climber. So I was in good hands. And I was on a world, we were on a world famous climb. And there were a bunch of other people climbing that day. Um, I wanted to add another element of outdoor adventure to my life. I love I love the wilderness. I've always been a nature person. I've, I I live I, I, where I live now is still nature, but at the time I was actually kind of running away from something back home, and so by going on this adventure, I didn't have to go back home again, and that played a big role into what happened that night, but also why I was there. So. We get to the top of this climb and the sun drops and the temperature drops about 30 degrees and hypothermia immediately sets in. And I, I was our, I was on the National Ski Patrol as a volunteer since I was in high school. And I was working that season at Bridger Bowl in Bozeman. I was a student at Montana State University, an exchange student. And I was working at Bridger Bowl. And the, one day the temperature in January got down to 50 below zero. And so they pulled us into the shack and they tuned us up on hypothermia and frostbite so that we know what to look for. And I, I spent most of that day when I wasn't inside warming up, pulling people off the mountain. So I was a pretty much attuned. I was very attuned to frostbite and hypothermia because I had a refresher just recently. And, and as soon as we reached the top of this climb, we began a hypothermic reaction. Our, our, both of our bodies began to shiver at, at the muscles were expanding and contracting independently of each other. So it's like this muscle is contracting and this muscle is, ex muscle is expanding. And the whole thing is vibrating. So I'm like this big twitch and I'm twitching. I'm just like shaking and twitching. My jaws clattering and we're scared out of our minds. We, we know. We knew for hours that we were in trouble. You can't just turn around when you're ice climbing and you know descend from where you are like you can backpacking on a trail. You got to go up the route and then you got to come down the route you're supposed to be on because of safety. You just can't descend the way you came up. So 
we had to continue the climb. And so hours before this even began, we knew what kind of situation we were in. Well, one of the things about climbing with this guy, Tim, and the week before when we were snow caving out in the wilderness, is that we both learned to, to trust each other with our lives. We had a whole bunch of adventures before this happened. This was, this was the deadly adventure, but there were other things that happened that, that we knew that our lives were on the line if we did not trust each other. And so Tim kept his level head and I kept my level head, even though we were petrified and our bodies are shaken and our jaws are clattering and the sun goes down and the temperature drops and Tim hauls up this rope. And it's kind of a, even though it's, it's, it was the North and it was March, the rope was wet because there's water falling on us all day, chipping away at the ice and ice going down my back. And, and also I'm dressed, I was dressed as a, it was sort of the end of an era The it was almost pre polypropylene underwear i had like it had just come out and i got a shirt but everything else i was wearing was was uh wool that's how you stayed warm in those days and so tim hauls up the rope it becomes this huge knot and uh, that began the second series of events that uh second and then there was a third and then there was a fourth of misfortune so my first was the choice of my equipment, and then the rope became a tangle, and then on the first rappel in the dark after traversing across in the ice, after discussing that we were going to die, we're like, this is a deadly situation, and we both know it. We're, we're five or 600 feet up. We're in the middle of the wilderness. We're on the Icefields Parkway for all you Canadians out there. Uh, it's Cirrus Mountain, uh, south of Jasper, north of Banff, but it is the middle of nowhere. It's like a, a day and a half's drive to the Arctic Circle. And it's a back road. It's a highway, but it's like, anyway, so we knew that our situation was desperate and we had discussed canoodling together against the mountainside to share our warmth like you do when you got hypothermia. But, you know, neither of us were warm. We're, we're both already in the onset of hypothermia. So there was no heat to share. So it was either die there or die getting off the mountain is the way we phrased it to ourselves. So the it took me quite a while to untangle the rope, 300 foot rope. And then we made the second mistake when we threw the rope around this tree, when we should have put a piece of nylon webbing around the tree and then run the rope through it. So the rope wouldn't freeze to the tree, which is what happened when we got down to the bottom of the next rappel, because we're hypothermia steals your reasoning. It makes you confused. It makes a person made me, I should talk about myself. It made me confused and I lost my reasoning capacity. Not all of it, but I, I continued to make and Tim continued to make rather poor decisions as we got colder and colder. We were, we were, dri we were driving ourselves forward with, this, with willpower for survival's sake. And we ha we'd had nothing more to eat. We had no more water. So we're, we're eating snow as we can. And we were both skinny minis. And so no extra body weight to, so when my body began to consume itself, I, I know it's, it's, it's hard to think that I went into ketosis that fast, but I, I, that's what happened. My body was, my body was expending energy, staying warm through the, through the shivering. And, and the freezing was, my lips were frozen. My eyes were, my, my eyes felt frozen. My fingertips got frostbite. My, my feet became blocks of ice. My, my, it was hard to move my lips to speak. They were so oh cold. Couldn't oh. form words. Um, it's so people like I live I, where I live right now. I live, I live 
in Maine and people go swimming. This is wintertime. People go swimming in the ocean and a bunch of my friends that keep inviting me to go. And I'm like, I cannot, I cannot get in cold. I can, I can be in the cold if I'm warm, but my, my thermometer, my interior thermometer is wrecked. It's, it's, it, I, my, it doesn't self-regulate very well. So the, and the, the cold is like, freezing is like fire it's like when you put your you accidentally you know you you get your, your stove going and you accidentally you know touch the burner it's like that it's 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 burns and so we get to the second repel the rope is stuck above there's no way out of this situation because there's a bit of an overhang we can't climb back up the way we came down and so tim begins to began to reascend the rope which was extraordinarily dangerous without protection. And I was holding the rope steady. The rope came free and we continued on. We made it to the third one to second repel. And now we're off the ice and we're on rock and the moon had risen. So there was light to see because it wasn't completely dark out. There was a bazillion stars in the sky of every color. And so we could see in the starlight, but then the moon came up and it was, we could see in color then. And, so we descended down this craggy thing uh, to the next rappel, to the last rappel. And on this last rappel was a, a ledge. It's like twice the size of my desk here. It's like a big, I imagine a, a, a huge family size kitchen table and, you know, fit or a big dining room table fits 12 people kind of thing. And it's like that big. And there's a rock face in front of us with iron pins. Uh, they so had drilled in and epoxied these pins in with iron rings and clipped in with carabiners and a strap with another carabiner to my harness. And Tim was to my left and I was to the right and I had the rope. And this is now hours and hours and hours later. And I'm telling the story very rapidly, but it was there. I reached a point inside my interior drive for survival where I touched this part of my brain that I didn't know existed. And it's, and I still have this well of willpower at my disposal because of this. There's a, there's a much deeper part of us that where, where the will to survive isn't an act of reason. It's a, it's an animalistic response. It's an intuition of drive. And I, I tapped into this place. It's like a door opened. And then I'm, I have this wild animal inside of me, not being crazy wild, but like being driven for survivability. Like as we moved through time, it was getting colder and colder as the night goes on. And that means our, our, our bodies are consuming more and more energy to stay as warm as we were, which wasn't warm at all. And we couldn't feed to fuel ourselves. And so we're, we're every step we take and every step we take consumes our, our, consumes our energy. Like every, one of the things about climbing is that a person becomes very efficient with motion. And here I am flailing my hands all over the place, not being efficient at all. But in climbing, you, you, you look at something and you're like, okay, my hand goes here and my other hand goes here and my foot's got to go there. And then as efficiently as possible, you make this single move or these two or three moves, because you don't want to waste any energy. And so we're moving with as much precision as possible. We even decided not to talk to each other as hard as it was to talk. You still got to talk to survive, but we would only use monosyllables if we could. Climb here? Yes. Rope there? Yes, that kind of thing. And so we made this descent and now we're clipped into the mountain and our frostbite and hypothermia, I've still got, I still have damage. I have all my digits, you can see, but they all were blistered and, and I've got, I've got, I, I got problems. I got, I got finger problems and toe problems, but 
So we're clipped in. It's now sometime before dawn. My feet are like those big ice blocks that you get at the convenience store. I can't feel my feet anymore. The fire has probably pretty much gone away from my toes. So what my feet are, you get to the stage of cold where uh, it, you don't feel the fire anymore. And it's like, okay, now you're going to lose your feet. And so I, I'm standing there and I'm clipped in and I take the rope and I tie it to my harness at one end of it. And I take the other end of it and I tossed it out around this corner. So we're on this ledge. We're standing on this ledge, the size of that dining room table. And in front of us, it kind of curves off to the right. We kind of came around to the left around this, this layer of the mountain. And so I took the rope and I tossed it out around that and I gave the rope a pull and it jammed up above, like, see this right here? Yeah. Just like that. Just, and I couldn't see that that's what happened, but that's what I surmised that as soon as I pulled on the rope, the rope lay inside some kind of V and it, and I got maybe six inches with it and, and it was stuck and I pulled it again and it got more stuck and I pulled it again and it got deeper stuck. And now the rope is stuck and we're still 150 feet up and, and, and I only have one end of it. So, uh, and you can't go back up the rope again and I can't climb up this rock and it's, even though the moon is up, this, this particular area is shadowed by the moon. So it's in the dark. And, and I, and I've got crampons and I'm not built for, I, I don't have anything way to rock climb up this thing. And so now we're in this situation of, uh, hyper danger. Like it's, this is, this is the end game and we both know it. And, and as I'm standing there and I, I'm not, I, I kind of fold inside myself. I'm still looking around. I'm still pulling on the rope, but I'm not paying attention to Tim at all. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's thinking. I'm not talking to him. I'm just yanking on the rope and, um, and thinking about my death. And as I began to think about dying, that I was not going to get out of this, the, the, this peace settled on me. This acceptance. And if you're, I've spent a lot of time with dying people in my career and there's comes a point with a lot of people who are, are terminally ill and they're right up against their mortality and they suddenly accept it and they become peaceful about it. And then they, then the roles reverse. And now they, they begin to counsel the people who are grieving for them as they, cause the people who are grieving for them, love them. And they know that they're going to die, but there's this role reversal because this peace settles in. So this peace settled into me. And I've got this calmness about my situation. And I, I started thinking about my parents and I started thinking about my sister. And the reason I had left home was my sister had run away when I was 14 and it seriously damaged my family and lots of pain and brokenness and anger. And, and, and I was just getting away and I didn't want to be there. But now here I am. I'm going to take another kid from my parents. I loved my parents. I love my parents. It's just that I didn't want to be there. And now here I am they're going to lose a second child. And as, as bad as it was, well, the thing about estrangement is that, is that in, a, in, the, in, in a mortal situation, a terminally mortal situation where, where a, a child dies, and, and, I, and I know that it's the hardest and, and most wicked thing there is. I, I've seen it a lot of times in my work, up close. Um, when, a, when a child is estranged, there's no end to the initial grief so the so so it, no there's no end to the grief for people who lose a child at all they're all you know a child dies that is a that's something you you carry for the rest of your life but you do kind of live into it but but in our experience with an estrangement you don't know if the kid's alive or dead 
You don't know where they are, so you grieve every day. My mom was in tears for years every day. So I was like, oh my God, am I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna kill their other kid from the stupid decision that I had made. But then I began to fall asleep. Mom's, go ahead. You got a question? You want to stop me? No, cool. no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm really enthralled. Like I, 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 I'm trying to save all my questions for after you're done. I'm just, I'm just really. This is insane. Like I, I'll tell you one thing. Like I've never did mountain climbing, but I can. I feel your. I, I can. I wanted to tell you this. I can relate to your sense of like adrenaline, the adrenaline junkie thing, because I used to be a surfer. Like I'm 42 now. I surfed when I was in my 20s and 30s, so I know what that's like. I've been in some really rough waters, like where it's been like people don't think this is that big, but I've been in like eight to 10 feet, you know, where I wasn't that experienced and I almost drowned a couple of times, but I never had a near death experience. So I'd love to hear more about this. Like, uh, and thank you for sharing, by the way, this is amazing. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And if I, if I had lived in an ocean side warm place, I would have been a surfer, no doubt in my <laughs> mind at all. And um, so I began to fall asleep. And, and this is one of the last stages of hypothermia. So I began to fall asleep and I would collapse like a, I, I describe it pretty often. And I have to come up with another metaphor, but it's like a curtain dropping. You're on a, you're in a stage, you're in the theater, you're in the audience and all the lights are off. And then suddenly the black curtain drops and the whole house gets dark. It's like that. It's like kaboom. This curtain came down. My consciousness shut off and my body would collapse. That was sleep. And I would smack into the rock, rock below me like this with a helmet on and stand back up again and pull in the rope. And I repeated this process a bunch of times, three, five. I don't know. I don't really know. And so this, I stand so up. You had gave, you'd given up at that point. Like you were, I had. You were, I, you were, I, oh, yeah. I was ready to die, but I was still pulling on the rope. I, you know what I forgot to mention is that before I started to fall asleep, I unzipped my coat, which is what happens to people with hyperthermia. They, you sometimes find hypothermic people dead naked because the body tells you that it's hot. And I felt like all of the blood rushed from my extremities into my core. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't need my feet. Who needs feet? I need my heart and my brain and my lungs. I don't need my hands. And it, and it seemed completely rational to me. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm hot, so I'm going to unzip my coat. And, and that seemed rational to me, too. But it, it wasn't. And, and so then I began to fall asleep. And I stood up this last time after I'd fallen asleep. And I, I'd stand up and pull on the rope, which was you know pointless. Because like every time I pulled on the rope, it, it just got tighter. And, and then I had this tunnel vision. There was this big black circle around my peripheral vision all the way out to the, you know, you stick your fingers out and you see your fingertips. It's way out there like that. And it's, but it's just, it's all around me. And it's like this big black circle. And as I look around, it starts to close on me. It's like tunnel vision. It's getting tighter and tighter and tighter until I'm looking. And I looked up at the stars and I look at Tim and I look over and I look back at the mountain. And as I'm looking at the mountain, it goes, like this into darkness and as it goes to this darkness and I, I and now i have this like little nickel sized point of light in front of me i think to myself i must be falling asleep but this is weird i'd never seen such a thing before and and it went like that collapsed but i didn't fall asleep i didn't lose consciousness i awoke it was this strangest thing that suddenly i i thought where's the mountain and why am I, am I lying down? Am I standing up? What's in front of me? How come I'm awake? Why am I, I don't understand this. I don't have any more pain. All the pain's gone. And, and as I look, this is the beginning of it. So everything I say is metaphor. 
I speak in metaphor about this. Every mystic in the history of the world talks in metaphor. All NDEers talk in metaphor because there's no, there's no substance to this other place. There's no physicality. There weren't any, weren't any words or I didn't even have a brain. And so I'm staring out into this darkness that extends, I don't know how far, a, gal a galactic, a hundred million light years. I don't know, some huge distance, but it's totally black. And I'm confused, but I'm not scared. And way far, far in the distance, there's like this tiny star appears. This one single white star appears. And, and, it, and it pops into existence. And then it rushes toward me with energy faster than the speed of light. It's this the 100,000 light years away. And then it's like almost on top of me in an instant. And as it comes to me, it sort of fills my entire view. And it, it, it speaks to me. It talks to me in uh, non-language, it downloads information to me. And I, I recognize this entity. This is, this is the same angelic form that had taken me as a child into a couple of mystical experiences. So I wasn't afraid of it at all. But as it came to me, it communicated to me, I'm taking you. And I was like, no, you're not taking me. I'm not going anywhere. I don't understand what's going on here, but I have enough sense of mind that I'm, I'm, I'm staying right where I am. And so I kind of put up my willpower, this, this powerful animalistic like drive that I had. And, and it was nothing to, in comparison, it was this, this being of light, this angelic form, this entity was a, a, a zillion times more greater than me. So much more intelligent. It, it immediately communicated to me its vast intelligence and it's it's you know in the christian tradition it's almighty god this thing was almighty like the 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 most power and strength uh, that I, I i couldn't even imagine and so it just took me just like that and and now i'm i was inside of this thing i'm inside of it and it's carrying me back up the way that i came and it's ginormous and i have i still have a physical body but it's not like molecules i have a shape like photons i'm like made out of light and i'm inside of this thing and i can see through it and i am in absolute comfort i'm like in the the best massage that you could ever imagine with somebody feeding me grapes and somebody else fan it's like this this most extraordinary comfort situation but it's it's the divine being speaking comfort to me it's infilling me with comfort. It's showing me its, its intelligence and its power, but it's filling me with comfort and wellness. And as I am filled with this, I have this uh, understanding that this entity in which I am being carried, while not the totality of the divine being, is a portion of the divine being. It is the divine being sort of reduced to some smaller size and super positioned it's 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 the fullness of the divine being and it's a smaller part of it and i know that it's like it's speaking to me through this and through this angelic form and as i get travel up this the same path that we came down that it had come down on call it a tunnel call it a, an elevator or an escalator or something it's like a highway or a train track i'm back up the same route that it had come toward me uh for me and i'm i'm super positioned so i'm inside of this entity this angelic being in absolute comfort. And I have, I have no agency by which I mean that I could, I can't control myself. I can't, I, I, I can see that I have this 
light body form that looks similar to this Peter, like in shape, but no like places for my eyes, but I can't move any part of it. And I don't care to move any part of it, but I can't move any part of it. And I'm, I'm inside this looking out, but I'm also outside of it looking at me. So I am somehow like an eyeball that's traveling parallel to it. But my eyeball, I look over toward the eyeball and I can't see it. So I can't see that part of myself, but I see with that part of myself, I can see myself. I can see myself inside of this angelic form and I am traveling inside of this entity and outside of it at the same time. And then we reach this, this limit where it had first popped into this void that I was in and it, it like opened like a petal, like a flower, or I popped out of it. I don't really understand. I'm still trying to, parts of my NDE are still, here it is 40 years later and I still can't see all of it. There are parts of it that are still re being revealed to me. And it's, NDE is this for me anyway, has been this ongoing experience over my lifetime of understanding more and more and more of it seeing more and more and more of it. And, it. and also it never goes away. It's not like it just happened in the past. It's always a hundred percent present every single day of my life. It never goes away. And so I, this, I, I, I kind of unfold into this greater void. I sort of pop out of this angelic form, or maybe this angelic form melds back into the greater form of the, the divine. I, I'm not sure what happened, but suddenly I'm inside this void that is much bigger than the void I had been in before. This this place I'm inside of, I am uh, an orb of consciousness and I have no physicality. It's not like I have a light body. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. I, I could use, I could say, oh, it's a, an orb of consciousness made up of energy particles, but there's no particles there. This is a no thing place. There was nothing there. There were no, no quarks and no muons and no atoms and no molecules, nothing. But... I was consciousness and I'm inside of this greater consciousness. And I know I'm in the greater consciousness. I'm an orb of my own consciousness. And as soon as I pop into this place in an instant, I remember myself. This is me. I think this has always been me. Well, how did I think that I was this, uh, this human being? I never was that human being. I inhabited that human being. This, and I am much bigger than my human form, ginormous in comparison. And my thinking is my seeing, and I can see in every single direction at once. So it's like 10,000 eyes, or I'm a single eye that can see everywhere. And, and, but my seeing is my thinking is my being. I, it's, it's not like they're separate things. I am one. And as I'm in this oneness state, remembering myself, I have this sense of my own well-being. I am not in suffering anymore. I am in, a, I am in timelessness. And that's not to say no time. That's to say no time and all time. Time that moves forward, time that moves backward, time that twists around. It's multidimensionality of time. And it's all located in the, in the singular now. I don't know how to. Dissolve metaphor. So I'm in this timelessness. I know myself for who I am and I am content. I know this is like, this is home. And so as I'm in this space, this, I can see into the darkness, just 
an incredible distance. I, I don't know. It's like, it's like with my naked eye, I could see Pluto from here. It's like, it's like that powerful or more. I could see that new planet they discovered, you know, 41 light years away that was in the news this week. Uh, and so, but I could, I, I could see it. I could see and see and see and see, but there was a point at which I could not see beyond despite this almost infinite seeing and beyond that point that I could not see, I knew to be infinity. I knew that there was that I was not in I was not enfolded into the infinity. I was inside of it, but I was not there was it, there was more to it than I could see. And as I'm looking at it, it there's like a an opening in the darkness. So so this darkness was a, an illuminated darkness, whereas uh, Margaret, uh, not Margaret Atwater, but uh, PMH Atwater, another NDE, she she describes it as a as a as a, a dark light. And it's like it's 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 both darkness and light at the same time. But it, it opens up and like a waterfall of light, this huge opening. And I'm gigantic, and the space I'm in is is even astronomically bigger. And this flow of light that appears in front of me is, uh, I describe it in my book by saying it's like seventy feet tall and thirty feet wide. But that's a representation of my tininess in comparison to the size of this enormous flow of light, this like ripping open of the darkness to reveal this light. And, and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen ever. It is, it's, it's so, uh, so much desire arose in me for it. And, and as I was watching it, it was, it was 10 billion colors it was all the colors of all of the stars in the sky that night, which when you when you go into a, a no light zone and you're far up in the in the toward the north where the air is crisp and clear, there's no humidity in the air. The visibility of stars is enormous. And it's like that. It's like all these stars, but it's not just the colors of the stars that I saw at night. It, it's all like the whole electromagnetic spectrum. It's like X-rays and infrared rays, and and but it's it's not it's but there's nothing physical here, so I could see all of these colors, and they're simultaneously white, so they're all of these colors, a million zillion colors, in a flow, but they're all white simultaneously, and I can see the surface of them, I can see the depth of them, and I can see through them, and and through them is a deeper entryway for me, and it's and since I was so desirous of this it's the, it's what i wanted and it moved toward me and with my thought i moved toward it now, i didn't have any means of locomotion except for thinking and my thinking was my being and as i thought it i moved toward it and as i moved toward it its power of seduction increased and and as i was being seduced into this beauty uh, i reached for it with my energy myself and I touched it. And as I touched it, I opened. And as I opened, it flowed into me and it surrounded me. And now as it flows into me, I couldn't see it outside of me, but I could hear it inside of me and feel it inside of me. And then all these things happened all at the same time. And I'll start by saying I went through a life review. 
And the life review I went through was uh, all of the pain that I caused everyone in my entire life from their point of view. I entered into their bodies in a chronological sequence of every single time in my life I had hurt anybody. And, and the, the littlest tiny thing and the huge big ones. And so I was inside of them experiencing their emotional and psychological state, their thinking. I could hear what they were thinking and I could feel their pain. And simultaneously, I was bilocated again. I was in my my physical self, my, hu my human self, or the memory of my human self, is maybe a better way to say it. And I experienced all of the reasons and all of my emotions and thinking for causing them their pain. And I went through every single, I was brought through every single one of those things. And in that process, I, I recognized that all the pain that I gave away in my life was karmically mine. I, I owned this pain. I, and it was 10,000 times greater than I had thought it was when I gave it away to them, whatever my reasons were. And it accrued to me. And as it attached, it had always been attached to me. And meanwhile, the voice, so, so this divine light becomes this voice and it speaks to me directly without language. And it says, I know you. I have always known you. There is nothing about you, meaning Peter, my human Peter, that has been hidden from me. I know it's like, like, you know, people talk about the Akashic records and the book of life and all that stuff. It's, it's like, or a movie of my life. It's, it's more than that. It's like, there is, there is every single, every single thing about me, every single thing about me was completely known. And, and in the experience of being inside the people that I hurt, the divine had been inside of them too, which is why it knew everything about me. It knew everything about me from the interior, but it also knew everything about all the pain I gave away from the interior of everybody else because it's also inside of them all the time. And so it's, I, I know you, I've known you, I don't know dark corners. And it was like I was in, naked, naked in, a, in, a, in the divine eye of fire of love. So it's staring at me. I'm completely naked. And it's looking at me with his eye of fire of love. And I judge myself. I don't get judged. All it's doing for me is showing me me. It's not, it's not new to me. I may have forgotten these things, but it's still me. It's still this Peter part of me. And, I, and, and as it looks at me, it doesn't judge me. It loves me. It loves me with this overwhelming love that is inexplicable or uh, uh, inexpressible, not inexplicable, but inexpressible. I can't tell you it's changed. It changed my life. And so as I go through the suffering that I gave away, as soon as I started listening to the voice speaking to me, love, like through this lens of all the love that had been given to me in my life and all the love I had given away, as soon as that began to happen, I got healed. All of the pain went away. And, and there was this phenomenal experience of, of welcome and wellness and love and, and, and wholeness and healing. And, and as this is going on, I see all of humanity's brokenness. I see everyone's in the Christian tradition sins. I see everybody's sins. And I see this radical equality of our broken nature. And the broken nature of, of our existence is not separated from the broken nature of the universe. The universe itself is, is a brokenness, a limited form of the unlimited, an impure form of the purity, uh, a, a manifestation of the unmanifested. And because it is unmanifested, pardon me, because it is manifested and limited and impure, it, 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 that's what gives it its existence. 
if 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 people are like, I want heaven here now. Well, if you had heaven here now in its fullness of what I experienced, there would be no here. Because it, the purity is this capital P of 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 in of, again ineffable <sighs> infinity. And so I, I had this radical equality with all humanity. I was no greater or lesser than anyone else or greater or lesser than anyone in the universe. My only comparative was the divine itself, which of which I was a part because now I see myself as a part and it fills me like this big, I'm like this big, huge balloon. And I get, the more I, 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 I turn toward it, the bigger the balloon I become. And as I'm expanding with this divine light it's speaking to me it's speaking love to me and beauty and truth and knowledge and understanding and and adoration and uh, peace and joy and all these things that are separate here but are one thing there eternity and infinity and knowledge and any i, I wanted to know as i expand with this oneness of being I want to know everything. And it shows me the structure of the design of the whole universe. Like I get all of the biology and the astronomy and the chemistry. I get the whole thing. Like I got it. Uh, I don't get it now. I don't, I, don't, I don't bring that back with me. But I remember that this thing happened to me. That knowledge became instantaneously available to me. And I became almost, almost reabsorbed. And I got to this edge of this place where annihilation of my now not human consciousness not light body consciousness but the 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 the, the whole of me was nearly reabsorbed back into infinity and as i get to this edge of this infinity of uh, inside myself up to the right to the edge of it i see the origin of myself and meanwhile meanwhile all of this is happening because i'm being called into being so I see my being called into being. I hear myself being called into being, not just eons and eons and eons ago, but in the very present now. And there's no difference between these two. And, and I, it's like my, I hear my name, not my Peter name, but my soul name, the thing that, that made me a separate entity of the divine in concert with it. And as this is happening, I see, my, I see the, the divine like a, uh, a field of photons, uh, just this huge field of photons way beyond my sight and every it's, but it's in front of me and I was, and not behind me, but it's, it is this huge and I can't see any edges of it at all or its depth, but I can see into it. And I am a photon. I am this, I am a photon like all of these other photons, but I am outside of it and I'm outside of it, but I'm connected to it. It's like this, again, this kind of superposition thing where I am in communication with it, made of the same substance of it, but I am, I am somehow a fragment of it. And, and as I see this fragment of, of myself, I see my, the, the everlasting nature of my soul. Like I, I, I saw this origin of myself, and then I see the elongation. I, I think of it, I've been thinking of it as a baguette. So I get this long baguette, and in this baguette, you stick a, a dozen, a hundred toothpicks, and all those toothpicks are my, my incarnations, but none of them are me. 
I am the baguette. Not only am I the baguette, I am the one observing the baguette. So I'm not even, I'm not even really completely the baguette, nor the lives. I am this other thing that is above all of that. And as I look at this, this long life of my soul as that, that gets incarnated, I'm in timelessness. So they're all happening at the same time. It's not like a, they seem to be a, like one and then the other, but they're all happening at the same time. And I asked to see inside and I got to look inside two of my lives. And in the first life I saw inside of, I was a human being and I was, I, I was on a dusty road somewhere and I had bare feet and there were like palm tree kind of things, but it was a long time ago. And, and I was like being a walk-in inside this other body. I'm suddenly inside this other body and I'm, I'm like, look at this place. And then I'm out again. And then I'm into another body. And only this other body, I don't know what I was. I was some kind of animal, maybe. Um, the, the world, I was looking through different eyes and the world was different. And was I on Earth? Maybe. Was I on another planet? I don't know. All I know is that this life was not a human life. Not like this. And, and, as, and then I got pulled back out of that. And... And then I'm back sort of, I guess, standing in front of the divine is a way to put it. And, and I have this remembrance. I, I get to this place of almost annihilation, and then I shrink back down again. And now I, I have this remembrance of my parents. I think about my parents, and I say, but my, you know, am I dead? After all of this, am I dead? And the voice says, yes, you're dead. It's time to come home. Welcome. You know, this is it. And I say, but what about my parents? And the voice says, what about your parents? I say, well, you know, if I die, they're going to suffer a great deal. And, and as I thought that, I was swept across heaven. So this place, this heaven is not this separate place from the divine being. It's the body of the divine. All of these things that were happening to me, they were all the body of the divine. So I'm inside the body of the divine, inside heaven, and yet it's the smaller separate entity of the divine that's speaking to me. And it sweeps me across heaven to this edge of it where there's, the, there's like a permeability there. And, I, and part of me is, is stuck outside of it, and I'm back in the universe again. Most of me is still in heaven, and I'm aware that I'm there, but now I see our entire universe in front of me. I see all of these galaxies and the spaces between them. And, my, and I'm, I'm not like choosing what to see. I'm being shown. And so my attention is turned and I see to the beginning of our universe. I see the origin of our universe. And in the origin of our universe, I see behind the origin of our universe. And I see all of these other universes. And all of these other universes are constantly unfolding. New universe, new universe, new universe. And they're not like one ends and one begins. It's like this constant unfolding of all of these a multiplicity of them and they're all emanating from this infinity that i can't see inside of but i see that it's there and and from that infinity i feel and experience the this immense amount of love and that all of these universes are made of this love and the universe of, the, of our universe is made of this love and i in my soul self am also made of love. I am made of the same substance as the divine, as is everything else. And as I look at this, it speaks to me inside myself and says, uh, I, as I love you now, I have always loved you, always 
is now and was in the future, will be, is, and now, past, present, future. And this love was the totality of the divine being aimed at me. And I became like the prodigal child in the in the gospels. I was the I was the most particularly loved being in all of the universe. And as this experience, I'm feeling this fullness of myself with this love. I'm shown earth, and I see inside of every human being. It's like a hologram of earth. And inside of every human being is the very same love that is for me. So I had this particular personal experience of immense love that was made me feel like I was the one and only, but I also saw that everyone was the one and only. And as I see this light, this golden light inside of every human being who's living, this is like I'm looking in real time. And, and, and around all these human beings, these 7 billion people, all of them with light, and I can see all of them at once, and I can see anyone in particular all at the same time. And, and there's this foam that separates them. There's this huge veil that's all between us, human being, between the human beings, it's not between me, because I'm not a human. And they can't, nobody can see the light. They can't see the light inside each other, that everybody's made of this, and that nothing is lost. And that everyone and everything is beloved of the divine, because it is the beloved divine. And as I'm being infilled with this and seeing this, I then see my parents' faces and I see these two tracks of their potential lives. I see all of the accumulation of their suffering, all in this moment, and I see inside of them. And then I see them living a life without me and living a life with me. And, and they both of those lives end up in the same place. And they end up right where I was. And the voice says to me, you can see now that they'll be here in a moment if you just wait. And, but I could see that they didn't think that, that, that they were going to have to go through years of suffering. And for them, it wasn't going to be timeless. Timeless for me, but not for them. And so I say, do I have to die now? Do I have to come home now? And the voice is, no, you don't have to. But, you know, it's your time. And I say, well... If I go back to help my parents not suffer the loss of another child, can I come back here? And they, the voices, they say, yes. And I say, well, then I choose to live my life. And they say, you won't live your life. And shoot me out. And I get shot out like a, like a pebble off a fingertip. And, and as I go, the, the, the reduced divine entity, this angelic form, escorts me. And, and I'm inside of it being escorted, but it's also next to me. And as I go, I take on more like a denser and denser body. Like I go from this, this energetic orb of consciousness back to a light body. And as, I'm, and a, as I go, there's 10, a t 10 million doors in front of me. And all of these doorways lead back to my physical body, but they're all different lives. And they're all there. And in the middle of all of them, there's this like big, huge white laser beam of the divine self beaming. So they're all sort of layered out like a flower. And, and in the middle of it is this center, the, like the, the center of the flowers is this divine light that's flowing from the darkness. Uh, and and it's, it's permeating all of these doorways and fading to the furthest edges. But even the furthest edges have some light in them. And as it go, as I go, the voice says to me, choose choose light and i and i think to myself 
I want to be creative. I want to be, uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I want to be a creative writer. I want to have a little hedonism. I want to have fun. And, 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 but all I want also is this divine oneness of being. I experienced this. It become, it's my beloved. I, I, I was going into exile. And so I also choose my beloved and I, I, I suddenly I'm in this life and it's close to the light and not in the light and not in the fullness of it. And, and I'm down this tunnel and in this tunnel, there are many, many more doors. And all of these doorways lead to all of the other lives. And so they're all individual choices. They're all, and, and, and as I go down, I see, I, see my, I see all these lives I could live. And, and, I, and then I get to the end of my tunnel, all these probabilities, I should say, all these probabilities I could, I, I could live. And I get to the end of my tunnel with this angelic form. And, and now I'm, I'm super small. This whole process, I'm being crushed down and crushed down and crushed down and made smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more compact and denser and denser. And I get to, now I'm, I'm at the edge of my body and I can see my body. I can see my body and, 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 and it, and it, this angelic form like, like rips open my body's chest, like this rip this line opens up inside of me and it takes me uh and screws me back in and it's this most painful process it's like screwing me back inside this opening in my heart and 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 now i'm now i'm inside the body and and i can see out the hole so i can see out the hole i can see this this entity i can see heaven from where i am and then the hole closes and i'm stuck inside this thing and now as my brain, I feel my brain coming back online. It was like a, like a coming up, coming up, coming up. And then I feel all this pain inside of me. Everything that hurt as a human being is now back online. And I was, I was confused. I was lost. It's like, what is this place? I didn't understand suffering. I didn't know where I was. I knew I was in a body, but I didn't know what that thing was. All of that had been erased from me. I had to wait till my brain came back online to figure out what was going on. And, and, and as I came back online, I started to hear sound and, and, and I heard screaming and crying that was unintelligible to me because I didn't understand language at this point. And so as my brain kind of comes back online, I, 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 I hear Tim. It's Timmy screaming, don't die, don't die, don't die. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I, my, my body's being shook. And I, and, and I open my eyes and there he is. He's like, ah, you're alive. You're alive. You were dead. You were dead. If you died, I was going to die. And he's crying and he's, he's all upset because, you know, it was traumatic. And uh, he pulls me back up, helps me back up to my feet. And he's talking to me and I don't know where I am or what's going on. I'm like, what is this place? And who are you? And, and why, what are we talking about dying? And, and then I kind of remembered and remembered and remembered. And then he told me, pull the rope, pull the rope. And I pulled the rope and the rope came free because I think, and I've thought a lot about this for the longest time. I didn't quite figure out what was going on. I think I fell further off the cliff when I died. I think I, my, I must have fallen in a certain way that loosened the rope somehow because when the rope was, it was around this corner and when you flip a line, you can kind of lift it like I take a hose and you make this big U shape in it. You can kind of lift the hose up or the rope up. And, but it was laying on the corner of the cliff. And when I flicked the line, the, I couldn't, I couldn't unjam it because I couldn't get the U shape to go or the waveform to go around the corner. And because it was touching the mountain and now on the first pull, the rope came free and we pulled the rope over and Tim set us up for the repel and he went first and I followed down and we 
got to the, because this is the Icefields Parkway and right across the street is the Saskatchewan River that we could hear all night long. There's a parking lot and our tent's in it. And he's like, let's get in the car and fire up the car. I'm like, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't do that. We have to heat ourselves up slowly because we have hypothermia. Trust me on this. And so we set up the tent and we get inside our sleeping bags and there's a, a chimney and a vent because it's a very nice Arctic tent. And we could fire up both of our stoves because we both had stoves. And um, although we only brought one when we were out in the wilderness, we both had stoves. And um, we sipped warm tea, stripped down, got in our bags till we were warm enough to get in the car. And 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 I'm going to skip to number two just to get it in. Wait, I want to ask you questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ask questions. Go ahead. I'll stop. Um, uh, uh, you think it could have been the angel that loosened that rope? All right, it's totally possible. That? It was just a miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because like, obviously, like it, 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 when you made that choice to come back, like, and I, I believe this was all 100, 120% real. Like, I believe everything you said and, and you experienced it. Like, I don't think it was DMT flooding the brain or anything like that. Like, and, and I can tell by the way that you tell it that you know it was real, you know? And, uh, oh, it was real. This is, Much more real this than is, here. This is what makes me, uh, realize like how weird our reality is you know what i mean like our, our reality is so much more stranger than and this is one of the reasons why i do this podcast like i wanted to know like what happens to us when we die i mean i think everybody wants to know that but like i was very you know like i mean i i bought the tibetan book of the dead before if that tells you anything about me like that mm -hmm. that should be, you know like i was really interested in that. i mean i'm really interested in ufos and all the other stuff too but like this is one of the subjects that really um you know for me, it, it just doesn't. So I, I, sorry, I went off on a little tangent there. I'm, I'll let you get back to your story. No, 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 <laughs> it's great. I, this is so interesting. Thank you. Um, I saw a UFO one in 1977. I saw one last summer in my backyard, and not like in Are my you yard. Serious? I was, yeah, I was in my yard, and it was overhead. Those are uh, other stories. In '77, I, I chased it with four other guys in a car for miles, and saw it do the things that they say. You know, uh, anyway, so. That's for another a story for another day. So in this was 1980 when I died ice climbing and and I kept it a secret for 20 years. I, I literally told nobody. Uh, I told my wife the day after we got married. I told um, my best friend. But I could I, I, when I say I literally told nobody because I didn't have any language to talk about it. So I say something like, yeah, I died ice climbing. Uh, what does that mean? They, there's no meaning in my words for them. And so I, I ended up over 20 years telling three people, uh, but keeping it a, a secret because it's crazy. All right. So here I am. I was going to go into architecture in the family business, going off to our grad school after an undergrad and um, going to the architecture business outside of Boston. And uh, now I am an entirely different person. I came back a completely different person. I look the same. I sound the same, but I am not the same. I'm not even in the same world. I am inhabiting a body. I know that I'm inhabiting the body. I see myself from the inside looking through my eyes at my hands and, and, and I see the whole world is this flat two dimensional black and white flickering sort of uh, bad film. And, but surrounding all of this is light pouring through. I see light everywhere even in this crude hellscape this beautiful hellscape so I, I ended up going on this i was in a theater company at the from at the university and we go on this three-month tour and i i isolated myself and i i dove into my meditation and 
and I, and meditation has been my salvation for this. It's been what's I've cultivated my connection. So in in between then 1980 and 2015, I lived a, a life of adventure. I was a minister, but my ministry was uh, as adventurous as surfing or skiing at high speed. Crazy stuff happened, like murders and uh, uh, murders and arsons and decapitations and just uh, embezzlements and all sorts of crazy stuff. And and I'm in the middle of all of it all the time. And so in 2015. In the meanwhile, after 18, you know, I went off to divinity school. I studied mysticism at Yale, which they didn't teach, but the dean of students uh, allowed me to do this. And she became my independent study teacher for three years. I got, she talked me into becoming a minister, which I didn't want to do. But then I figured I could hide in the church. I had to do something with this. Where's what's, what better place could I be than hiding in plain sight? So in my contracts with these churches, I contracted that I could meditate and do yoga, like in written Okay, Peter gets to do yoga and meditation and and continue his studies. And so I dove on the ins. I dove inside. I practiced Kriya Yoga and centering prayer um, uh, into silence. And I studied what I didn't study in divinity school. You know, I, I just continued my my global research into into mysticism, because at this point I never heard a near death experience. Well, I had heard of it in in eighty six, but I didn't know anybody, and I didn't know how to figure it out. So I continued my mystical studies and practice. And in 2015, by that point, I'd been recruited into television. So I, I had this church in this uh, resort town on the coast of Maine, uh, half resort, I should say, because the rest of it is it was fishing, fishing people and uh, lo the locals, who you know, the winter people. And I was a winter person. And, um, and in 2015, I'd been recruited into TV at this point and talked into writing that second book because I'd been working in New York um, with a with a with um, a network out of there too, not just the one back in Maine, and they talked me into writing a book, and so I write this book, Heaven Is Beautiful, and and then I was on I was on Cape Cod. I went for a run, visited my parents. I live on the Cape, and I I went for a run, and I was like, geez, you know, that was a terrible run. I don't feel good, and so I drove home the next day, and and. I was gonna go sailing, and I get down to the to the dock, and the it was it was so fogged in, I couldn't even see the boats, and so I was like, "What am I gonna do?" I had a day off, and so um, I go to yoga class. I get there late, and it's hot yoga, and and I'm practicing yoga with all these people. The teacher lets me in, and I'm by the doorway, and and as soon as I start my practice, I'm like, "Geez, I don't feel well," and so I lay down in shavasana, which is lying down on your back, and I, and I'm profusely sweating. And I shouldn't be because I because I was late to class and I hadn't even done anything yet. And and so I was like, what's going on here? And I was like, oh, my heart hurts. What's, and, and I and I think oh, I think I'm having a heart attack because I'd also I'd also been an ambulance attendant in my life. So I'm like, oh, I think I'm having a heart attack. But I'm I, I you know, I ran 5K yesterday. I'm Mr. Fitness. I'm fine. I go outside. I get up and I leave the class and I lay down in the grass. And as I'm lying down on the grass, I'm like, this is getting worse. This the pain is getting worse and worse and worse, and it's not getting better. And I'm still sweating profusely. I'm like, okay, this is really a heart attack, and I should get myself to the ER. And I try to sit up, and I can't. Like, oh, that just that waste. And I think to myself, oh my god, I get to go home today. I, this is my day. I didn't know when I woke up. All my life, so 
I had like two things that happened to me when I, after I died. I prayed every day to die. Every day for 20 years, I'm like, take me home. I don't want to be here. I got a raw deal. I didn't want to, I made a mistake. Take me home again. And I also, so I was trying to get out of here, but I was also trying to, to learn about how to make this connection. And then, so I was feeling pretty good that I was going to die that day. And I, I, I wasn't really prepared for it in terms of my family and all that stuff, but I was completely at ease and, and I was just lying there kind of waiting for it. And the teacher comes out and she says, Peter, are you okay? I say, uh, teacher, I won't say her name. Um, uh, no, I'm having a heart attack. She said, no way. Look at you, Mr. Fitness. I'm like, no, no, I'm dying right here. You know, and I know that this is what killed my grandfather. It killed my sister. My estranged sister eventually died from the same thing. And it would have killed my dad, but they life lighted him back in the early, in the late eighties and saved his life with an injection. And, and, and now it's, I'm a half an hour into my event because she didn't come out because she's teaching the class. And so, you get an hour, uh, you get a golden hour. So I'm a half an hour into my, my, my event. And I was like, I'm dying and you got to get me to the ER. And so I convinced one of the students in the class, a friend of mine to take me, to drive me over. And I get over there and it's a couple, two or three miles away. And I get there and I call ahead. I'm having a heart attack. And the doc's like, come on, Peter. Cause I, this is a small town. I know everybody. I know the doctors. I know the nurses. I know everybody. And he's like, come on, Peter. Really? If you're really having a heart attack, you should drive right up to Damariscotta. And I was like, no, I, you know, I'm not going to make it to Damariscotta, which is 30 miles upriver, 15 miles upriver. And, um, and he's like, all right, uh, come on in. And I get there and they x-ray me and I got a hundred percent blockage in my Widowmaker. And. Oh my God. That's yeah. huge. That's, that's, a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. And, uh, and, 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 and he's like, and I and this little town that I live in is an hour and a half away from the catheterization lab. And it's Saturday, it's August, and it's Maine. It's like traffic. And so I he's like, All right, so we're gonna get we're gonna transfer you to the ER to the catheterization lab. The ambulance shows up, and I know the ambulance attendants, I know I know the nurses, and and my wife shows up, and my son who's in his late twenty mid to late twenties shows up and and uh, he's like, the doc's like, well, we, we want to give you a decoagulant. It'll give you maybe a 3% trickle through and maybe it'll help. So he gives me the, I'm like, I agree. So they give me the shot. And then he's like, here's some morphine for the pain. Because it's like an elephant standing on my chest. It's like in pounding, like, like all the weight of the elephant. And, um, and I'm like, no, I can't take morphine because it makes me nauseous. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, been, I'd had morphine before for something else. And. And I said, so I'll be in the back of the ambulance with a heart attack with a mask on vomiting. That's not a good thing. And, and so he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to meditate. And he said, what, are you going to meditate? I said, yeah. So if you stare at your pain with your breath, you can separate yourself from your pain. And it, it's a, an easy technique that anybody can do. And so I've been practicing that particular technique for all of my time as a meditator, in addition to the other stuff that I do. And so it kind of raises one above the pain. And as long as, you're, uh, as, long as I'm in this, this hyper state of, of focused awareness, looking directly at my pain with my breath and my mind, it doesn't hurt. And, uh, and so I... I it, it, I know. So sorry, I got. I got to know the. I got to know more about this. This is so interesting because I, I. I love learning. Like you're focus. You're actually focusing more on the pain, and that gives you, you a heightened state of awareness. Yes, you're, exactly. You're, you're, you're so. choosing to delve into the pain instead yep. of like trying to do something else to take your mind off it. You're. You're staring. You're facing the pain. 
is what yep. you're saying. And I'm aiming at it with my with my breath. So I'm looking right. So if I'm sitting, if I, I you know I get this. My grandmother used to get feet cramps. I'm like, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with her feet? You know, my feet hurt today, Peter. And and so I get feet cramps now. They're not terrible. I just get foot cramps. And and when I'm when I'm kneeling, especially in my yoga practice, when I'm kneeling on my mat and and my knees are together and and I'm sitting on my feet, my feet get crampy. And instead of like, ah, oh, the cramp. I, I breathe, I look right at it. I breathe into that one spot. And, and, and I look right at that cramp with all of my mind. And as I look at it, uh, the pain goes away. <laughs> That's just what happens. Wow. Um, and, and it's not a mat. It's not magic. It's the brain. And, and if you, anybody can do this. And so if you want to learn how to do this, Pick an uncomfortable position and sit in that uncomfortable position. And when it begins to hurt, look right at the pain. And, and, and if you're thinking about the pain, you're not looking at it. And if you're trying to avoid the pain, you're not looking at it. You know when you're looking at it because the pain goes away. Um, and so that's what I did for this whole ambulance ride. But before I left, so I'm, in the, I'm on the gurney. My wife is there. My son comes over and he 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 grabs my hand and he squeezes my hand and he looks me, comes really close to my face, as close as I am to this microphone. And he says, Dad, I love you. And I look in his eyes and I'm like, geez, this kid's not ready for this. I see all this panic, not not like like crazy panic, but like shock and and dis, dis, uh, disease and um uh, and fear and 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 he's squeezing my hand and and i and i love you too andy and um and then my wife is on my right side and i look up at her and i kind of smile at her like you know i've told you this a thousand times my dear but the first chance i get to go home i'm out of here i love you but i have only one beloved i have only i have only one and 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 so i give her a hand squeeze and she gives me this kind of smile and a wink and and off i go in the ambulance and and I'm meditating the whole time. And, and even when you're meditating, you can hear everything going on around you. If you meditate, you know that. And so I, I can hear, suddenly I hear the paramedic. She's like on the radio, um, while calling into Portland to the main medical center. We're losing him. We're losing him. And um, so I open my eyes up and I look up at her. Uh, and she's got fear on her face, but because she's a professional, because, you know, I'm, my eyes are closed the whole time. So she has fear on her face, but she would never do that if I, my eyes were open. As soon as I open my eyes, she's back in professional face. So she's like, no, you're going to be OK kind of thing. And um, I'm not afraid kind of thing. And I knew she was. But as soon as I opened my eyes, my pain came rushing back like, whoa, way too much pain. And so I immediately close my eyes and I go back into my meditation, but I never make it to my meditation. As soon as I go back inside, I'm out of my body. I'm out of my body and I'm, I'm above my body. I'm not like in the ambulance looking down and I can't see her and I can't see the driver. It's not like that. I'm in a dark space. I'm in the void again, but I'm close to my physical body. And, and as I'm upside, up out of it, I can see inside of it, not outside of it. So it's like I'm looking into the shell of it. And, and as I'm in this space, the same angelic form comes down toward me and calls me. It's time for you to come home. We've been waiting for you. Welcome and welcome and welcome. This is a huge welcome and this like joyous. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm here. And so I turn to go. And as I go up with this entity back up this tunnel, I, I think to myself, wait a second. Let me let me see. I'm thinking about my son's face and I should check out and make sure everything's OK. So I say, hang in there. 
I turn around, I go back inside my body, but I'm not like in my physical body. I'm sort of looking around inside my brain. And so I'm looking around at my memories inside my brain and I see my son's face and I see that he's not ready. I see that he's, this is a shock to him. And he's just not prepared for this. I see my daughter who had just came out of a, a difficult marriage, shall we say, that involved uh, mortal, uh, a, a mortal um, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder in, in the military and from Afghanistan and her new husband and, and bad things happened between them. And there was a new baby and the baby was at risk and we had just rescued the two of them. And, and now she's, you know, who's going to protect my daughter and who's going to, who's going to be the grandfather, the father figure for this girl and for the, my granddaughter. And so I, I, I then I'm like, and I see my granddaughter's two lives. Now I see her two lives. I see her life with me and her life without me. I'm like, oh, this kid needs me. And so I turn around and I go back up and the angelic form had receded in this sort of polite way. And, and as soon as I came back up, it rushed toward me and I said, hey, I'm, if it's okay with you, I'm staying. And of course, I'm speaking language, but there's no language here. This is all, this is all direct communication without conceptualization. There's no, I don't have a brain. So there's no brain to conceptualize stuff or, or form language. It's all very direct. And I say, I'm, I'm, if it's okay with you, I'm going to stay because I, I know I, I get to go home eventually. I, know th I, know, I knew the last time that I died. The reason why I, I, I chose, one of the reasons I chose to come back the last time wasn't only because I wanted to help my parents, but because I knew the duration of life was durable, endurable. I meant it, it, it has an end point and I could make it to that end point because I know what the ending is. And so I thought it was going to be easy. It turned out not to be that easy, but, but I chose the second time for the same reason that, that she needed me, but, and my son and my daughter too, but I knew that I was going to go home at some point and it was all going to be over and I'd be fine. And so back in I go and, you know, they stick a stent in me and, I still don't take any pain meds because all they're offering me is morphine. So I meditate for like eight or 12 hours. And, and finally I'm, my brain is exhausted. I'm in the ICU and I'm all hooked up and I'm like, you got to give me something. I can't do this anymore. You got anything other than morphine. They're like, Oh yeah, we got something else. <laughs> like, like they could have told me five hours ago. And so they shoot me up with this other thing and my pain goes away and I go to sleep and I get up the next morning and they move me to another room and my family's there, my wife and my kids and, and some friends who work in the hospital, doctor or two people I know. And, um, and my wife says to me, um, so I thought you were going to go last night. I said, well, I did. I said, I died again. And I, I chose to come back. She says something like, but I was already making plans <laughs> in, a, in a very loving sort of way. And, um, and the only way that married couples can do. And, um, and my son says to me, the doctor told me to say goodbye to you, Dad, because you were going to die on the way. That's what I was doing. It was my last goodbye. And uh, and then I'm in the hospital bed, and and I, and I open up my – and a day goes by, and I open up my phone, and, and I've got damage in my heart. So I was in – by the time I left the hospital, I was outside the golden hour. So I get this hour-and-a-half drive. So I've got, I've got scarring in my heart. It's this really long recovery. It took me a year to recover. And, um, and, but I'm still in the hospital bed and 
I open up my email on my phone and I get this notice from Amazon. They released my book a month early while I'm in the hospital. And in nine weeks from this day of I'm in the hospital, I got to be in New York for a, a national morning show and uh, as promotional. And they, so they released my book a, a, a month early. And, and, and every time, Every time a person has a mystical experience, and near-death experiences are a kind of mystical experience, there are many other kinds. Visitation from the dead, an out-of-body experience with the divine, of an angel visitation, lots of things. But every time an experience like that happens, the person's course changes. They become a different person. And so if a person is a, uh, uh, loses someone that they love, and then that loved one comes to them in a dream, but it's not like any other dream. It's more than a vivid dream. It's, it's direct communication of divine love or forgiveness or welcome or whatever the message is that, that changes the living person's grief. And from that point on, they know their dead loved one isn't really dead. They might not know that about anybody else, but they know that about this one. And that's a, a course change in their lives. And so every mystical experience is a course change. And so as I changed that first time and subsequently in other mystical experiences that happened to me, as I had been changed as a child, this near-death experience, afterwards, I, I, I've been slowly coming out of the closet. I came out of the closet to my church after this big, huge embezzlement, after they tried to, that's uh, a long story, is it full of drama. And, and after, the, after all that happened, I trusted them enough to tell them the truth. If someone said to me, you must have had a lot of faith to put up with us faith in God. I'm like, no, I don't have any faith at all. I'm not even a believer. God's real. Call it, you know, Allah is real. Atman is real. Whatever name you want to give this thing, all of them are metaphors. And, uh, and so after my second NDE in 2015, suddenly I'm all in. I'm like, okay, no more hiding anymore. I am, uh, even as my book was coming out, which felt like this huge risk to me, like, who's going to, who, I'm never really interested in anybody believing me. I just didn't want to be thought to be insane. That's really all I was concerned about is I didn't want people to think I was crazy. I didn't care if they believed me or not. I just didn't want them to think I was crazy because that's the, that's career ending. That's relationship ending. That's like lock you up kind of ending sort of thing. And, and I didn't want that. And so I kept it a secret and and this coming out with this book, I got talked into it by this New York network, and um, which is fine. It's great. It's worked out great. But it was pretty scary. Uh, I'm not afraid of pretty much anything, but I was afraid about losing my income and my family. Because my family, my mom and my dad and my siblings, they didn't believe me. And, and it's, it's, and, and even though I say I didn't need people to believe me, it's really hard when, when the people that you love you know, think something happened to you. And, and so when I, I, at some point after my, my heart attack, I was down visiting my folks again. And I said to my dad who died about a year ago now, and I, I saw his death and I attended his death. And sorry um, for your loss. thank you. Uh, he's well now. Thank you. And uh, mom, mom's suffering his loss, uh, but she'll, she'll find her way home too at some point and be freed of all of that. Um, helping her too. But, but I asked my dad, I said, like, so that summer that I came back home again, after this, I, you know, after I died, I went in this theater tour, it lasted three months. And then I, then his buddy came out to pick me up and drive me back from Bozeman to Boston, but his, his truck threw a rod and we had to hitchhike back across the country. And, and I, and I said to my dad that summer, 
what did you think of me? And he says, well, your mother and I, we both talked. You, you were a different person. It's not like you weren't kind before, but suddenly you're just really compassionate all the time. It's like you came back a different person. And, and the, my entire life, like I have no, I have no evidence for this. I, I, I don't I wasn't, I wasn't in a, a, a for the first one, I, I could, I could dig up evidence, I suppose, from the ambulance, but I haven't bothered. But for the first one, I got no evidence for this, but I have an entire life change. I changed the course of everything. And I, my, my life is my evidence. That's all I can say. And I think this is true of all near-death experiencers. I don't know that that's true, but I think it is. And I think that when one has this radical change where um, you see not only that your body isn't your, is, is simply a containment unit, but that your higher self is immensely different than the physical self that you live in, you then for, you the, thenceforth live differently. You're a different person and you make, and it's not just that a person, it's not that it's just that I make big different decisions. I make lots of little different decisions that other people just don't make. Like I like talk about adventure. I live on probably the most dangerous bicycle road to ride in my, in, my, in the region because it's super narrow. It's very twisty. There's no shoulder. You got to white ride the white line. There's gravel. There's it, it, and people go fast and, I've been riding it for 20, for 20 years and, um, and I, 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 I'm not afraid. I'm just not oh. afraid. And, um, and, and that actually keeps me safe. I have, a, I have a better, I have a, I just got a new, I got an e-bike, a fat tire e-bike. So my road, my riding is much safer now cause I am aging. Um, so I get to get off the road a little bit into the gravel, um, and get out of the way of the cars. They're all very kind to me because they all know me. So we all wave and stuff now. But um, yeah, so you have amazing. This is a this is a such an amazing story. I I, I, I don't have really any questions. I, I'd love to talk to you more. I'd love to have you back on again because uh, I, you know Michelle sent over a bunch of talking points, and I'd like to you know like since you told your story, and the audience is going to get one once I post this, the audience will get an idea of what your story is now. And then maybe we can do a part two where we, we talk about like spirituality and we go over some of the topics Michelle brought up. Would that be okay if we did that? I, I'd love, I'd love that. My, my entire mission of my life is the communication of this. So I came back from my NDE and I had a, I had a purpose that was given to me, a calling, a mission. And my whole life has been about, my whole life as a writer, I, I've earned a living as a writer my entire life. A working writer, clergy are working writers. I wrote for for a journal. I wrote books. I wrote for this TV show. I just write and write and write. And all of it's about learning how to communicate the thing that can't be communicated. That's my job. And so I'd be happy to come back. And I thank you for asking me. And I want to tell well, your well, audience if they want to speak with I, me. Oh, oh go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, just to say if they I, want to speak with me. One thing I want to ask you is yeah. the mystery of life. Like, what do you think this is all about, though? Like, that's my one question. Like, what do you think are, like, what do you think? And, 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 uh, that's probably a long, you know, like, it's, it, I just have to know because, like, what, I mean, like, I, I ask myself all the time, like, what are we, like, what is the whole, you know, like, reason we're here? Like, what do you think it is? Like, with, 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 with your near death experiences and you got to see the other side, like, what do you think? Because we have these meat suits and obviously we have a soul inside. 
and that's a, a everlasting and we reincarnate it seems like but like what's the is it to learn and we learn here to learn lessons well, it's not just human beings so we're not the only ones here it, it's like you know does your dog have a soul yeah. yeah, you know, birds. You know, as the 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 study, the the scientific research in birds is proving that birds have consciousness, consciousness, like they're self aware, like they they solve problems and they communicate. They have language and they communicate. And dolphins, the same thing, and chimpanzees, and we're not the only ones with consciousness on the planet. And so there's all, there's and not only it's not just our planet. It's it's all the other planets and all the other star systems and all the other galaxies. You got the James Webb hanging up there in space now. And like I mentioned earlier, they found this new uh, planet uh, 41 light years away. They don't know if it's habitable for human beings yet. Does it have an ocean? Does it have an air? They don't know. But but it's only 41 light years away, which is pretty darn close comparatively. So we're not alone in this universe. It's not just about yeah. us and our meat suits. The whole thing is like this extension here's there's a question that that um a rabbi once asked me um he said and it's a rabbinic question he said so what's the one thing that the unlimited capital u the unlimited can't have like a riddle what's the one thing the unlimited can't have and the answer is limitation so this oneness of being this many that are one is is experiencing the world through me I am this other thing. I am, and there's a there's a point at which, and I've I've spent my life in cultivation of this. So I couldn't I couldn't get myself back home. I was prohibited from killing myself. There's a part of the story I didn't tell, and and I had to stay here. Like you're going back, you can't leave. You can't you can't kill yourself. And like, and and so I spent my entire life trying to carve my way back, Kriya Yoga primarily. And, and this practice into silence. And I found that to have a footing in the world, I had to give up myself. And the more I practiced surrender of myself, the more filled with light I become. Heaven becomes present for me. I become more light. And the less I am attached to my false self, the less I'm attached to my false self, the more I understand that I don't matter. I saw, I saw myself in relationship to the size of the universe twice in my life, twice in mystical experiences. I am infinitesimally tiny. I don't matter at all. In my, in my human self, this human self I'm living in, it's just one of many incarnations. It, it's, I'm passing through here. And, and, by, and this understanding of my passing through here is like my superpower. It's because I because I I'm not I'm not really concerned about why I'm alive. I know why I'm alive. I'm alive to be in the presence of the being now, and that's always my story. And in the cultivation of the being in the presence now, and then living my life as ever it is. So one of the books I came across after my NDE, um, before I knew what it was, was Illusions. Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah by the same guy who wrote this once famous book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which is also a story about spirituality. And in this book, Illusions, the lead character is a messiah who quits and becomes a barnstormer. And in the, in the middle of the story, he says something like, 
uh, a barnstormer in a biplane going from fair to country fair in the in the Midwest of America all through the summer and selling airplane rides. And and he says something like, "Just because you're the Messiah, you can quit the job. You don't have to. There's not. You don't have. You don't have to do anything with this. I have the full. I have full control over this. I can choose to pursue it or not. And and so I can be anything I want with it." Which is why, so you look around the end, I look around the near-death community the, the, of the people that I know of, the tens of millions of people in the United States, like 5% of the population, um, of the people that I know in my wider NDE community, we're, we're doctors and we're, we're janitors and truck drivers and policemen and nurses and professors uh, and uh, scientists, research scientists. We're everybody uh we're millionaires and the poor it's in my town there's seven people in my town and and one of them owns a fish fry and one of them works at a laboratory and one of them is a nurse and it the purpose of their living becomes the beingness of the divine inside them and you can live any life that you want it's it, that's just an expression of this other thing this higher self the thing that matters is this higher self. And so um, I, that doesn't mean that I don't stand up against bullies, that I don't want peace on earth and, and famine to end and, and, and the end of suffering. I mean, th th those are things that arise from this as well. The, this drastic compassion for the purpose of being is the, is the ending of suffering for others which you can't actually end anybody's suffering. You can, you can help them in their suffering, but I can't, I can stick a bandaid on my kid, but I got to wait for the heal for the wound to heal on its own. And, and so my purpose is my return home. And my return home is the opening of myself and the enlargement of myself as a container for the divine to be inside of me while I'm here. My purpose here is to bring heaven now to myself. And, and selfishly, that's been my pursuit my whole life because I was desperate and alone and in darkness here. And, 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 and my only salvation was the pursuit of the oneness. And as I pursued the oneness, I found myself infilled by it. And as I became more and more infilled by it, I became more settled in the world and I, I became less and less attached. I, I live non-attached anyway. I, I, I became more attached to the divine. And as I became more attached to the divine, I, I became more compassionate in the world. And so my purpose of my being here isn't the, isn't, and, and of course, I, I, you know, I got a mortgage and I got a car and, and I got to pay for my kids' college and all this kind of stuff. I, I got a life, you know, and um, I got a granddaughter. And, but, I, but none of those things are real. All of them. And I, you know, as I worry about the finances, like everybody, you know, what's the gas bill's gone up so high? What are we going to do? All that kind of stuff, right? Because we're here. But all of this I know is passing away. And so it makes my, journey through it a lot less uh painful i think it still hurts but even when i physically get hurt and it you know i break my leg or something which i've done and i i it's it's endurable because of this and so my purpose of my being is being itself and 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 loving as much as i can it's not what 
Is it the advancement of my soul on the other side? Am I like, is this a school for me to learn? Well, maybe. But when I was dead, I had access to everything. I had all knowledge. I was, I was enfolded back into the divine in a state of union. And, and so for me here, I, 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 it's part of my journey. And I, I know that I expect to bring karma back with me. I expect to go through the flaming sword in in the in Genesis. There's this this idea that there's a uh, when Adam and Eve, mythological Adam and Eve, get kicked out of heaven mythologically. There's a uh, there's an angel that guards it with the flaming sword that they can't get back in. You know, well, I, I did. I got back in. I went through the flaming sword, and I'll go back through the flaming sword again without a without a hesitation. Uh, and so, whatever karma I pick up here, I'm willing to get burned off me by the divine fire of forgiveness. If that's my fate you know lots of people don't go through that kind of nde they have other kinds and um and i know that in my in my higher self in these subsequent mystical experiences i came back supercharged and then i went in pursuit of it and the more one eliminates one's false self the more one becomes susceptible and sensitive to divine grace of of what you know christians call rapture which is an ecstatic experience of the divine oneness of being in many different forms it's it's mysticism it's what rumi and lao tzu and muhammad and all these people and so the, the i became more permeable and in one of those experiences i was i was traveling in my 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 soul body my consciousness body this orb of consciousness but i was being escorted by my angelic friend who was bringing me through layer and layer and layer of, di of dimensionality, less and less dimensionality into a cleaner and purer heaven, layer by layer by layer, heaven by heaven by heaven. And as I went on through each one of these, it was like a peeling off a new layer of, uh, of a false self of my own consciousness. And as I was peeling off the, as this layer was peeled off of me, I, it felt like it was, ah, this is the totality of my being until I went through the next one. And then this is the totality of my being. And all the time I'm aiming toward the divine light, which is getting closer and closer and bigger and bigger and getting further and further away at the same time. And so the purpose of my being isn't about my living a physical body at all for me. The purpose of my being is, is the aiming of my soul self, my oneness self, back at the oneness of being and to be back and folded again. And so this is the, I can't speak for anybody else, but as a human being, it's to love and be loved and live as compassionately as possible. But in my true self, it's only about my beloved. It's only about the pursuit of the oneness of being. And, and that's not just true for me here. I know that this, this pursuit of mine, I'm still traveling in my astral, in my not my astral self, in, in this 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 thinning consciousness, ever closer toward the divine. I'm in I'm in these two places at the same time. I'm not just above looking inside myself and here. I'm also continuing my soul journey toward the toward, to return to the oneness of being. And 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 I know that that's not the answer that you probably were looking for, but no, it's no, it's the beautiful. It's, it's truth it's, it's of amazing. my existence. It's it's a it's it, 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 that was so well said. I, I love that, and, and I, I that's no, you couldn't. I don't think you could have said it any better, honestly. 
I, I honestly don't. I don't think you. Well, I think that you. was really well eloquently said. Well, um, I'd love to have you back. This was amazing. I mean, we went a little bit longer than I planned for, but it's okay. I, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very honored to have you on, and, and uh, I would love to have you back on my show again. Can you tell everybody where to find your book? If, if, if you have a website, where to find your website? And if you want to be contacted by other NDEers who, like, you know, if you want to be how to contact. I do want to be contacted, and not just by NDEers, but I, I do help uh, because I went through the process by myself, and I found my own way, and I utilized the mystical literature, uh, the global mystical literature to guide as my guides. I, I have a uh, an ability to help guide new NDEers through their process. It takes about 20 years to reintegrate, but you'll do most of it on your own, but I can help, especially the beginners. And, I, and other people have had mystical experiences, and I do pastoral counseling as well. So I'm at peterpanagor.love, peterpanagor.love. My books are all over the place, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kindle, uh, uh, Audible. There, it's England, Italy, uh, everywhere. They're everywhere in the world. And um, I particularly find, and I have a YouTube channel, Peter Panagor is my YouTube channel, and but I particularly find that the divine is best between in, in an interpersonal situation. You know, I like that. Yeah, this is amazing. This has been amazing, and and thank you, but thank you so much, Peter. And uh, yeah, we have to do this again, definitely. You're you're an amazing guest. This was a. I think this is going to do really well. You know, well, I think people are going to really you know be blown away. Um, th thank you so much. Thanks for having me.